We good? There we go. There was on one occasion two men who were discussing the deep things of God. And the one man who was pushing the envelope and wanting the answers that maybe weren't available kept asking, what do you suppose God was doing before he created time? What do you suppose God was doing before he created man? What do you suppose God was doing before he fashioned the earth? And finally, the other man had enough and said, probably creating a place of torment for people who ask those kind of questions. You know, I think sometimes we are intimidated by a deep study of the nature of God and the things that we're uncertain about. Sometimes, however, we spend so much time on the deep things that we fail to accept and to believe and to appreciate those things that are obvious and clear to us. We'll try to find a balance between those two thoughts for the remainder of our month together in November. Now, if if you're looking to this side of the assembly to get the subject, you'll have to, if you'll remember, go back to March because we swapped those two themes. We began studying about worship in March because we had these grand plans to, to alter our services, to move our Bible classes to Sunday night, and to, to really uh, build some momentum. And two weeks in, the whole world changed. But we talked about, for the Sundays that we did meet, we talked about worship in March. And so we moved the Godhead study to November. And I had all of that time to prepare myself and my mind and my heart to know that we're going to deal with deep and difficult things and I'm still not sure I'm ready to engage in this month of studies on the deepness and the importance and the significance of the Godhead. In fact, I believe there are times that we are confident and comfortable in relying on the principle of Deuteronomy 29.29 when it comes to matters like this. That is, that the secret things belong to God. And we sometimes use that verse as an out because we don't want to dig and we don't want to look and we don't want to believe that God has revealed it. But friends, God is knowable, isn't he? He's provided a revelation, not not just in, in the words of Scripture, but in the nature around us and in the Christ who embodied the Godhead as he walked on the face of the earth. And so we should be able to know something about this particular subject matter and concept. Now, when we think about the the concept of the Godhead, the most common word in our religious vocabulary is the word Trinity. And we shy away from using that word sometimes because it is not a word found on the pages of Scripture. It it has Latin roots and it it means a a triad or or three-in-oneness. The concept and idea of, of, of three things that merge together, that come together to make one thing. Now, that may seem simple. But as many have been cited to say through the years, and maybe you can trace it all the way back to Augustine, that when you try to explain the Trinity, you might lose your mind. But if you deny it, you could lose your soul. The idea of this, this, this three in, in one, this three persons in one essence, that's sort of the definition that we'll work with. Now, keep in mind a couple of things. When we suggest persons, we're not talking about human beings. We're not suggesting that God, the Father, is a human being, a person, and that Jesus the Christ is and always has been a a person, and that the Spirit is a person. No, we talk about persons. We're talking about a a separate entity. The Bible will reveal this in a number of ways, and most clear is when, when 
someone in the Godhead is speaking, they will talk about I or me. And when they talk about another person in the Godhead, they will say them or you. That, that very vocabulary and language indicates to us that there is a, a oneness to the, these three that make up the idea of Godhead. When we think about nature or essence, that is three persons in one nature or one essence, we're suggesting everything that defines God in that thought. Everything that is eternal, merciful, loving, powerful, creating, Three persons in one essence. You will, if you separate one person out, you will have the fullness of all the Godhead there. If you separate the other person out, you will have the fullness of all the Godhead there. Three in one. Erickson said about these that, that while these three members of the Trinity can be distinguished numerically, they are indistinguish, indistinguishable in their essence or in their substance. How deep is this? Remember when, when Peter finally understood it? By the way, if we believe in the incarnation, we believe in the deity of Jesus, we must believe in the idea of, of at least two identifying individuals, two, uh, two separate but yet together people in the Godhead. We believe in three, but we'd have to believe in two. When Peter finally got it, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of living God, what did Christ say to him? Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. See, this isn't a, a concept that you and I would make up. It's not something that we would impose upon because it is so difficult to wrap our minds around. And because of that, we need to realize that we probably never will fully wrap our minds around it. The term in Scripture for Trinity that's used to describe this three-in-one is a term in the older languages, and the older versions, rather, is translated Godhead. There are three passages in the New Testament Let's consider those together for just a moment. There's Acts 17, 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. That, that term for divine nature translated in the older, older versions as Godhead doesn't just mean God the Father, isn't just referring to God the Son, but, but a, 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 a connection, a combination of these beings in one essence, this divine nature. You find the same word used over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through, the, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Same word. It's used in Acts 17 and used again in Romans 1 and then used finally in Colossians 2 now. Now it's referenced or at least it's hinted at in, the, in our scripture reading, that, that fullness that dwelt in Christ. But for in him, speaking of Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That word deity is the same word for Godhead or divine nature in Acts 17 and in Romans chapter 1. That, that's the concept that we want to explain. So it is a biblical one. While the word Trinity isn't going to be found in Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the, of the Godhead is absolutely taught in Scripture. Now, I don't know that I have to tell you this, but I will say it, that the, the understanding and the acceptance of this triune nature of God has caused man some problems through the years. In fact, if you read any of church history, you'll know that for the first three to four centuries, there were, there were debates around every corner. Many of them centered on the nature of Christ, but they were rooted in the nature of the Godhead itself. 
who, who, who dwelt therein? Was there more than one? Was there three in one? And it led to a whole other discussion. In fact, it led to two prominent thoughts. One is known as dynamic monarchianism. The idea that there is one person and that when Christ was born, he was totally human, fully human, until the point where the Spirit of God descended to him at his baptism and he became God, at which the Spirit of God then left him at the cross and he then ceased to be God. And so God simply worked through Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth was born of natural means, was a natural man, died a natural death, but somewhere in the, in the span of his lifetime, he became empowered by God for God to work through him. And so that was one explanation. And it was very prominent and accepted among many, in many circles because it made more sense than the divine re- revealed concept of three in one. And the second prominent and, and, and maybe more prevalent thought was a, a concept known as modalistic monarchianism. And all that suggests is this, that there really is but one God, one person in the Godhead, and he just has three different personalities. And here's the way it would be explained. This is very prominent even in our religious world today among certain uh, various denominations. He would say this, I am, to take me for example, I am a son, I am a father, and I am a spirit. And so I am one person with three different roles, three different functions, three different attributes. And that God would be one person just talked about from the viewpoint of someone who sees him as a father and someone else who sees him as a son and someone else who sees him as a spirit. But in reality, there's no distinct nature or, 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 or individual differences between those things. They just are descriptive of the role that they play. We reject outright and, and plainly because of Scripture those two thoughts. But what does the Bible say? And, and how should we understand it? And why does this even matter? Now, I will say that if you can... Can, can, can stay awake through this discussion and, and, and then come back again, tune in again, that, that we, will, we will get a lot more practical in our approach. We'll talk about each person of the Godhead and a particular lesson dealing with, with, with their nature and character and, and purpose in, in our lives and role and, and all of that. But we have to lay the groundwork to be able to do that. So what I want to do first this morning is I want to take a, a, a quick trace through Scripture as to this teaching of a plurality of beings in and that possess Godhead. By the way, I don't know that, I, that I've said it yet. I know I haven't, and I don't know that I'll, I'll say it, so I'll say it now. The idea of Godhead could easily be understood and maybe more, more accurately be understood in our terminology by saying Godhood. If you say that, that there are those of us in this room that share in parenthood, okay, there, there are things common to parenthood that are the same for every individual. And if you meet that criteria, then you are a parent. You are part of parenthood. Manhood being the same, the same thing. Sisterhood being the same thing. Now the difference is, is that we can be parents and be part of parenthood and be different on a thousand other levels. That's not the Godhead. But the concept is this. Anyone who has attributes of deity is God because it's part of, he is part of the Godhead, part of the Godhood. All right? So a, a quick trace, very quickly before we look at this, there are a couple of things that need to be considered. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, if it were, you might go ahead and check out now because we would be here a long, long time, and we're going to try not to do that. Secondly, it's not possible. It's not possible for us to go to one passage of Scripture and answer every question. I don't know that it's possible to answer every question anyway. 
But it's certainly not possible to go to one passage of Scripture and answer every question. It's sort of like the way we lay out the plan of salvation in the New Testament. The, 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 the steps that God wants us to, to work through and to move through that leads us to faith so that we can obey the gospel. You're not going to find any one example, any one place where all of those are spelled out in clear, precise detail. But if you take the picture of the overall concept of the New Testament, it becomes clear. What will lead from someone from unbelief to the waters of baptism that their sins might be washed away. I believe the same is true as we walk through Scripture. And since there's so many, I'll put these on. I'm not asking you not to turn, but if I move quickly from one to another, I don't want you to be frustrated, and so I'll put them on the screen. First of all, look at, Rome, or look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, by the way, there are some things we could do with this that we're not going to do. For example, the word Elohim in the, in the Old Testament language is a word for God, and it's a plural word. Now, there's an argument against that somewhat. Uh, some suggest there is a plural of majesty, that any time a being is so much greater than you that you refer to him in a plurality because of how great he is. And that is true in Hebrew language. But we don't know that's the case with why, why that word was chosen for, for God in the Old Testament. But it is a plurality, but we won't consider in depth that thought and, and other things like it. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, or verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now listen, this is the first chapter of Scripture. I'm introduced to God just 27, 26, 25 verses before this, and now I learned something that, that people still struggle with accepting. That God's talking to himself, right? And he's referring to himself in a, in a plurality form. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There had to be somebody else there. It had to be someone else he was talking to. It wasn't the angels because the angels were created beings. They weren't creators. Seems to be then there were a plurality. We won't take so long with each one, just a, a sampling. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. A man eats the garden or eats of the tree in the, in the midst of the garden. The Bible says that he will become like one of us. Speaking there again from the perspective of heaven in a plural sense. In the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis chapter 11, in verse number 7, the Bible says, let us go down and see what they're doing. Who's going to ascend down? Who's going to go with them if there were not more than one person in the Godhead? One that I had never considered before is over in Isaiah chapter 6, that great throne room scene where Isaiah feels as if he is, is, is unworthy to go, but he wants to go. He wants the Lord to send him. The Lord asks this question, who will go for us. That's the concept of plurality. If you go over in the New Testament, there are similar references. In fact, they're far more, for, more bold in, the, in their statements and their concepts in the New Testament than in the Old. And after being baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Did you notice in that text, and have you ever noticed before, the presence of the Son, the voice of the Father, and the dissension of the Spirit all in one passage? Three in one. Not, not one that, that just has maybe three different personalities or three different viewpoints or three different aspects of his role, but three different individuals present in that moment and on that occasion. And it's based on that and that Old Testament teaching that men would, would routinely reference it as if it were understood in, in the letters of the New Testament. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. 
You notice in just one short passage, the Lord, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. He, even in the seven ones of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one Lord, there is one Spirit, and there is one God and Father. In those seven pillars, the distinction between those three, and yet there's one in connection. Peter puts it in connection with our salvation. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then in Jude 20 and 21, But you, beloved... Building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ in or to eternal life. It's really clear, isn't it? It's really plain. Now, how that works and what that looks like and, and, and the ability to explain that, I'm thankful there's so many evidences of it that I don't have to spend all of my time in this sermon explaining what it means. I can spend a lot of it just establishing the fact that it is. Because the Bible is so full of those descriptions and those concepts. If that's not an easy way to do it, let's, let's look and do it this way. Let's look at a, a vivid dis- distinction that's made. We'll look now particularly at the Gospel of John for just, just a moment or two and, and make note of this, this, this distinction. Turn with me to John chapter 5. We'll start in John 5, we'll end in John 16. We'll notice just a handful of passages uh, between those two that indicate to us not only are there three But according to the language of Scripture, these three are obviously distinct in one way or another. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Notice the distinction there. Now, we don't go to that passage generally to talk about the difference between the Father and the Son. Why? Because it's just accepted. We just understand it. We go there to talk about the nature of judgment and who's going to be judging us on that day and what that's going to be like. But at the heart of the text is simply this this vivid and and notable distinction between the Father and the Son. Again, John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's speaking there of the Father. He says it again in John 7 and verse 16. So Jesus answered him and said, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. And then the final passage in this regard between the father and the son it's seen in john 8 and verse 54 that should be 54 we'll go to 42 also if god our, our father would would love me for i have proceeded forth and have come forth from god that i have not even come out of my own initiative but he who sent me and again then in verse 54 if i glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our god there is a vivid clear, notable distinction. Now, I think that's of particular interest in this book, the book of John, because the book of John seemingly was written to express to the current readers of that world that Jesus was God because people had stopped believing him. Remember how it opens? We'll talk about it a little more as we close the lesson, but in the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus the whole book was written so that I might know that Jesus is God. And yet in this book, more than any other of the New Testament, a clear distinction is made between the Son and the Father. I think there's something to be noted in that and understood from it. But not only is there a distinction in, in John between 
the Father and the Spirit, there's a, there's a, or the Father and the Son, there's a distinction between the Son and the Spirit. Two passages, one in John 14, one in John 16. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is a distinct role difference and function separation between all three persons of Godhead in that one statement spoken by God the Son and then John 16 and verse 7 but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you quick trace through scripture verifies this three persons in one essence a look just momentarily at the Gospel of John gives us a vivid distinction between their personalities. But then, I don't think our lesson could be complete without some illustrations. And really, if, if, if font size would have allowed, it probably should say some inadequate illustration. Okay, Remember, this is a divinely revealed doctrine. It's not something that you and I will probably ever fully wrap our minds around. And so I'm not sure there is a vivid, final, perfect picture. But we try, don't we? At least preachers do. We, we want to give an illustration. We want to, want to take something you can hold in your hand, something you can look at, something you can, you can take home with you. So I'll just give you a few that have been used over the years. One that's been used is that of an egg. You have the, the shell, the, the white, and the yolk. They're all egg, right? You see it laying there. You might identify it as a particular part of the egg, but it's egg. When you put them together in the same essence, the same place, they become one. I, the, most, the one I've used most over the years is the idea of an apple. You have the, the peel and the core and the meat. All distinctly different in, in how they make up the apple, but they are apple. They're not egg or anything else. Another description that's been used is the idea of, of the, the, the nature of, of water, finding it in a, a, a form of vapor, in a form that's solid, in a form that's liquid. Now, I realize that there, there are holes in all that. One I, one I read and I found a little bit humorous, is a, a single pair of pants. There was a, apparently a conversation that was had, and, and, and a person was asked, are your pants singular or plural? And the guy answered and said, at the top they're singular, at the bottom they're plural. I guess, suppose we could apply that to the way we think about the nature of the Godhead. But rather than looking at those examples, I want us to look at one from Scripture. And, and, and I try to learn in every sermon that I deliver. I, I, I don't try to just take something that, that maybe is easy or that's always been considered and just re-preach that. Sometimes we have to, and you can't find new stuff on every subject. But I would dare say if we preached on the Godhead ten times, we'd find something new all ten times to consider. Let's go back to that thought in, in Genesis chapter 1 for a moment. We're told that, that God would create man in his image. Notice the language again. He says, but God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so there's this idea of this, this creation of God in God's image and then this statement of two at the end of that, right? Let's create man in our image. And he did that, right? Did he not create man on day six and in his image? Doesn't that statement include Eve when we say that? Now, we could go on to further explain and, and, and to stipulate that Eve was a woman and she was also part of that creation. But when we say God created man on day six, that terminology, that thought, is man and woman, both in his image. But then look at chapter 2. 
In chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've spent a month talking about marriage and the necessity of the oneness of that union, of the togetherness, of, of, of being a, a, a team, a unit, inseparable, indistinguishable in so many ways so that our work can, can, can be what it ought to be in the home. With that in mind, those two statements of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, listen to this famous and, and memorable passage in, in Deuteronomy 6. Here it is where the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You know what that word for one is? In Deuteronomy 6, it's the exact same word for one as in Genesis 2.24. Is God teaching us through creating man in his image and watching man blend together in unity in one place and become one with someone else? Is he giving us a picture of what the Godhead and its unity looks like by helping us to appreciate and to see that while distinct in their person, when you're in marriage, you are one, in agenda and will. In fact, the problems come, right, when you're not in that. I believe better than a pants illustration or an apple illustration or an ice illustration is God's own language about creating man and woman in his own image, making them one, and then using that as the backdrop to say, and the Lord also is one. Lynn, then with why this message is needed. Why is it needed? I would say first and foremost, first and foremost, it's needed because the deity of God and the three persons of the Godhead is at stake in this discussion. I'm not suggesting that we do it, but we could be guilty of it. Somehow elevating the role of God the Father above that and the prestige and power of God the Son. And likewise, elevating the role of both the Father and the Son to being more important and more significant and more reliable than that of the Spirit. So the Bible is abundantly clear, Ephesians 1 and verse 3, that God, or that the Father is God, right? It's clear from John 1 and verse 1 that the Son is God. It's also clear from passages like Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, that the Spirit is God. This discussion is to the heart of who we are. Listen, our fundamental belief is we believe in Jehovah, the one God of heaven. And if we try to minimize, dismiss, disrespect two or one persons of the Godhead because of our misunderstanding, we need to get it right. It's a needed discussion. I'll add these thoughts before we dismiss. It's also needed because it will deepen my knowledge of who God is. I may never know him fully, but I am called to know him. This study is needed, number two, because it will strengthen my assurance that Scripture is true. You know one of the greatest problems and difficulties that people had with accepting a triune God was the concept of polytheism versus monotheism in the Old Testament? It's, it's the Jews' number one problem with Jesus' claim to be God. Listen, there's one God. You can't be God too. They didn't understand it. They didn't appreciate it. And he was trying to show them two in one, three in one. But if I'm going to appreciate 
that Scripture is true and there is no contradiction, I'm going to have to understand somewhat the concept of Godhead. Number three, it's needed because it will help me appreciate the activity of God both past and present. As we move forward in this series of studies, one of the things that I hope becomes clear is that the Bible teaches that our God is active. What do we mean by that? You know what we usually mean by that? We usually mean by that our God the Father is active, right? He works, He answers. But does the Spirit not still have a role? Does the Son not still have a role? If they do, we have to appreciate that. Otherwise, we have an inactive God. That's deism, friends. That God doesn't act. And so a study of the Godhead will help me appreciate the activity of God, both past and present. Number four, it will enhance my worship. It will enhance my worship. How many times have we said it? Friends, we're not here about us. We're not here about you, we're not here about me, we're here about God. And the better I understand him, his triune nature, his three distinct persons, the power of his majesty in all three, the more full and powerful my worship can be because I understand God even better. I appreciate you making it through with me today. All right, we'll get a little more practical and perhaps engaging in this conversation over the next few weeks. But if you're not a Christian, if God's not your God, Let's not leave here today without fixing that, making it right. You see, in our salvation, there is a role that all three have and continue to play culminated in the cross where one of those in the Godhead took bodily form and died for you that your sins might be forgiven. Be taking advantage of that offer. If you have, have you lived up to what has been instructed by that same God about your life? Have you been someone who's kind and loving and forgiving, kind and evangelistic and, and, and thoughtful, courageous and bold? If failure in one or more of those areas has brought reproach upon the Lord's church, perhaps you need to make that known this morning, that the church can pray with you. They can pray for you. Maybe it's something that you've done and experienced and struggled with that's hurt your relationship with God that needs to be talked about between you and God. Friends, take care of that. What an awesome and mighty and wonderful God we serve. And he longs for you to come home. If you have not, come while we stand and sing.